Uh, I'm delighted really to be here and to speak with you this morning, especially because Pastor Justin is on a well-deserved sabbatical. A number of years ago, uh, I went for my annual physical to the doctor, and after he examined me and did all the blood work and looked at all the results of those tests, he said, has your church ever given their pastors a sabbatical? And I said, you know, I really don't think so. And he said, because you need one. And uh, it's the first time that somebody ever challenged me or even challenged the church. He said, if, if it's okay with you, I would be willing to write the church a letter and encourage them to think about giving a sabbatical. And um, I said, well, let me, let me deal with the men first and break the news to them before they get a letter from you. And uh, I'm just grateful and thankful that our elders um, uh, decided to give Phil and to give Justin uh, some time off, some extended time for rest, for refreshment, to be with their families. Uh, the demands for ministry um, is extensive, and I've had the privilege the last several years to kind of work alongside Justin on a number of different projects and both he and Phil um, expend themselves for you all in ways that many of you don't even know. And so uh, I just want to say on behalf of you, thank you for your willingness to extend to them a time of rest. I don't know how much rest it's going to be the next couple of days for Pastor Justin because there's a major snowstorm developing where they're at. And so if you could just pray for extra strength and patience, and I don't even know if they have warm enough clothes, um, but, but they're going to need it um, as this storm continues to develop. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul loved this church. Uh, this was a church that was growing in the gospel. People were being saved and they were being discipled. Um, this church was an encouragement to Paul. They supported him. Uh, they went out of their way to make sure that he had what he needed. Uh, he rejoiced in their faith in Christ. In fact, you can read about that joy over and over um, Rob mentioned it a number of months ago when he kind of gave a brief overview of the book of Philippians. And, um, and I wanted to zero in on chapter 3 in particular because I think it would be an encouragement to us all this morning. And I want to begin by saying that while I know there are a number of Christians who think the Bible and sports are not compatible I just want to go on record and say I'm not one of them. And I know this is obvious to some of you because a couple of months ago, we had the privilege of zooming in to Noah's wedding. I won't ask for a show of hands because I'll be embarrassed once they tell you what I'm about to say. So I don't want to know how many people actually were listening but on that afternoon, the, the wedding was to start at 4 p.m. our time. And if you know anything about NFL football, uh, the first game starts at 1 p.m. and it ends right about 4 p.m. Three hours is usually what it takes. 
And I'm a New England Patriots fan. I apologize. We've embarrassed the league this year. They're talking about firing our coach and having him move on tomorrow. Uh, we'll see what happens. But I was watching the end of the New England Patriots game when I was trying to zoom in to Noah's wedding as it was just going to start in a couple of minutes. And as I'm watching the game unfold in the final minute of the game, an official made a crazy call. And I said, oh, you got to be kidding, or something like that. Immediately, I got a text, I won't say who, Bruce, turn off your microphone. <laughs> I heard from many of you, including a couple from the other side of the world, who was tuning in to Noah's wedding that heard me, my frustration with the call. I may have even disqualified myself from being an elder, but that's up for the other guys to, to figure that out. But I think Paul loved the sporting world. He uses many analogies in his writings to talk about sports and the competitive nature of some things. In 1 Corinthians 9, for example, we run to win, or we box to hit a specific target, not beating the air. In 2 Timothy, we fight the good fight, we finish the race. In fact, we'll see this morning that the race analogy is used often. In Ephesians 6, we wrestle, uh, not against flesh and blood, but our wrestling match with the devil and with the adversaries that would come against the gospel is real. And some of you are probably wrestling through some things right now. And in 2 Timothy 2.5, an athlete must compete according to the rules. The umpire referee in me likes that particular verse because over the years as I have officiated many sporting events, it's been the rule book that has bailed me out time and again. Well, our text today provides a word picture of an individual runner striving to reach the finish line to obtain the prize. If you'll turn, if you haven't turned already, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Paul is using that metaphor of a race where he exhorts the participant to pursue the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. It speaks of the Christian pressing forward, striving ahead to reach his or her goal. And the goal, of course, is to become more like our Lord Jesus Christ. The particular passage that we will zero in on is verses 12 through 16. And really, Paul wants us to understand the full measure of why running this race is important. Let's read the text together. Not that I have already obtained or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Think on that for a moment. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. 
Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now my outline this morning is slightly more complicated than my last message on prayer. If you remember back a couple of months ago, I had two major headings, heavenly prayer and earthly petitions. If our prayers are to be of any earthly good, they must first have a heavenly origin. God's will, not our own, must be the priority on earth as it is in heaven. This morning, our text in Philippians 3 mandates a fourfold structure, and each pillar will outline or begin with the letter P for Parker. That's easy to remember. Perfection, verse 12. The past, verse 13. The prize, verse 14, and our pursuit, verses 15 and 16. And in a moment, we'll look at how these specific terms help us in our journey with Jesus. But before we do, I want to provide a brief overview of chapter 3. And I think this is important because verses 12 to 16 have a context, a larger framework in which the Apostle Paul is operating here. Because if you're going to pursue the prize and run the race to win, you must be born again. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you must be full of joy. We really do rejoice in Jesus. And when we think about what He has done for us, there's no reason not to. So in chapter 3, Paul begins and ends the chapter by distinguishing between the true Christian who is able to run the race and the spiritual deceiver or pretender who fakes it. Verses 2 and toward the end, 18 and 19. In fact, in my opinion, verse 3, in contrast to the false teachers and spiritual pretenders, provides one of the best definitions of a true believer in Scripture. Look at it with me for a moment. Paul says, For we are the circumcision, the true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. If you have been genuinely born again by the Spirit of God and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and trust in His finished work on Calvary's cross by His cutting away your sin to sanctify you and bring you into the presence of Almighty God, then these three marks identify you as a Christian. You worship in the Spirit of God. You glory in Christ Jesus, and you put no confidence in the flesh. Our worship is not religious, ceremonial, or legalistic, but real. One of the things I've heard from visitors who come into this church and want to stay with us and join with us is because they realize that the worship of Jesus Christ here is real. People's hearts and lives are moved by the Spirit of God and, and our love for Jesus is genuine. We have a hunger and thirst for the preaching of the Word of God and for the righteousness that Christ has given us by faith in Him. Really, you might say, as a body, we're alive. We're not dead. 
There's times when Jesus confronts certain churches in the book of Revelation who really are a mask of depravity. Uh, They say they love Jesus, but they don't. Uh, Robert prayed from Matthew 7 this morning. And there's many other passages that we could look at. Um, Well, he read, actually, promoting his seminar from Matthew 7, where that passage says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this in your name and done that in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity or lawlessness. And to be perfectly honest with you, over the years of my ministry, I know full well that there are both wheat and tares in the church as well as out there in the world. Maybe even some of you here this morning have never committed your lives to Jesus Christ. You've gone through all the ceremonies and you feel like you're in Jesus or at least in the church, but you've never been born again by the Spirit and you're not able to run this race that the Apostle Paul urges us all to run here. Secondly, the true believer glories in Christ Jesus. You want the name of Jesus to be magnified more than your own. This is one that humbled me in the beginning. When I was an unbeliever, I wanted my name to be magnified. I mean, I was only five foot three inches tall, so I needed to do something to be recognized in the world. And so I wanted my name to be magnified, not the Lord's. How was I going to survive in the society I lived in unless people knew who I was? And yet when Jesus Christ got hold of my heart as he does the Apostle Paul's, he rearranges the spiritual molecules so that he is magnified through us and we are humbled. You know, I prayed three times that the Lord would remove this cold. He didn't do it. I sort of heard a voice saying, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. My grace is sufficient for you, Pastor Bruce. Um, And I know that I needed to pray that God's power would be magnified through my own weakness. I needed to glory in Jesus, and that's what a true believer does. Thirdly, a genuine Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. Your significant And worth comes from Jesus, not from yourself. And this is the one that really strikes home, I think, for all of us. I mean, do we really get up in the morning and the first thing that we think about is, okay, Lord, how can I deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you? Or is the first thing I think about is, hey, what's for breakfast? You know, or what's the first thing on my agenda today? Um, on Tuesday mornings, the elders get together for prayer at 6 a.m. Now, for some of you, that's part of the middle of your day. But for most of us, that's not. I actually wear a ball cap to the prayer so that my bedhead won't be seen, in case some of you guys were wondering why I I switch hats frequently. That's the real reason. But we pray for the body of Christ here. We want to lift you guys up before the Lord because we love you. We care for you. You're part of the flock that God has assembled here. And, um, and really, 
no matter what inconvenience those disciplines might cause our flesh, we rejoice in what the Lord is doing and we ask the Lord to crucify our flesh, to put it to death. Isn't that what the gospel is enabling us all to do? And that's what Paul is saying here, that as he defines who the true believer is, he says we worship in the Spirit, we glory in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. And then on the back side of the passage that we're going to look at, it really deals not only with false teachers, but I think with false disciples. Instead of following the example of Paul who follows Christ, many might be tempted to follow the carnal that infiltrate churches all over the globe. They're, they're enemies of the cross, he says. In fact, if you look at it with me for just a minute... He said, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. They do just the opposite of what the true believer does. The call to obedience that Paul lays out for them in chapter 4 is not theirs. It's not even a concern of theirs because they do not possess the Spirit of God. And by the way, you need to know that all the things you do in Jesus is not because of you, it's because of Jesus. And the Spirit of Jesus Christ within you. Uh, the motivations that we praise God for in different ones through different ministries are the result of what Jesus is doing. So rather than pat ourselves on the back, all we can do is give glory to God and thank Jesus for the work that He's doing. So many passages in the New Testament in particular, but also images from the Old Testament, forewarn the church about the lukewarm who are more into self than Jesus. People who are deceived and deceiving in their relationship to Christ. As, as Robert read this morning, they say, Lord, Lord, but they really don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, a few verses will suffice, but beginning in verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And even Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, after explaining the gospel and proclaiming the truth of God's Word, he says, I make known to you the gospel by which you also are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. You know, I can say some of these things because I was one of those individuals. I went to church all my life. Not necessarily a church that preached the gospel, but I thought I was a good person, good enough to be able to enter into the presence of God. I won't bore you with my works. Paul's works were far better than mine, and he lists them here in Philippians 3. But I would boast about my works, and I did do that when people challenged my walk with God. I said, hey, look at me. And they said, look at me, look at the Word of God. 
not of works lest any man should boast. And that really started to get me to think. Well, here in Philippians 3, verse 3 describes the true Christian, while verses 2 and 18 and 19 describe the pretender or the false disciples who are never making progress in seeking the prize because the prize is really not his or her goal. Let me ask you this morning, are you pursuing the prize? That's a tough question for those of us who live in Naples. We're pretty comfortable here. Um, God has indeed blessed us, but sometimes we enjoy the blessing more than anything else, when in fact we really still need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And there's lots of work to be done. There's a field white unto harvest here in this town alone. I can't tell you how many people, whether you go to the beach or you work here locally or you recreate or whatever, you just start to talk to them and many of them don't even know who Jesus is. They've been so consumed with this world and the things of this world and their love for the world and the things that this world seems to be able to afford to bring pleasure to them that they haven't even thought about coming into the doors of a church and worshiping on a Sunday morning. But one of the things that I've heard over the years from different family members and people who do come to church are excuses for why they're children or their unbelieving friends or neighbors who give lip service to God don't actually come to church or don't seem to follow the Lord. They say, oh, well, they don't have Christian friends. Or maybe they don't read their Bibles. Or they don't attend a good church. Uh, they're carnal and fleshly by nature. The, Lord, the world has lured them away. But rarely do I ever hear folks say, you know, I don't know that they're saved. I don't know that they actually have a relationship with Christ. We tend to want to make excuses sometimes for people who are not in Jesus. One of the things I loved about Pastor Justin when we first started talking about just a number of things related to this church is he loves the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. Are you in Christ? Do you know Jesus? Part of Paul's plea here is that he wanted to know Christ more than anything. All the things that he valued prior to his conversion, he was able and willing to put into the lost column that he might gain Christ. Uh, look in verse 9. Be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And he says in verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Beloved, as I said for years, I was one of those pretenders. I didn't grow because I couldn't grow. Jesus was not my Lord because I refused to submit to Him. I love myself and my sin more than Jesus, even though I pretended to follow Christ. 
Something you probably don't know about Sandy and I is that when we married, I was an unbeliever. I was the pretender. She didn't really understand that. She didn't know that. I deceived her into thinking I was real. And so she was going to marry a real, genuine Christian. She was really young. And it became very clear soon thereafter that now that I got my catch, the real me surfaced. Some of you have had some of those heartbreaks. Maybe you thought you were getting together as believer and believer and marrying only to find out that one of you was outside of Christ. Beloved, when Jesus Christ makes you one of his own, you belong to him. He bought you. He paid the price necessary to redeem you and make you one of his own. And we realize that, we know that, we realize that all of our good deeds that we've made a boast about in the past are now placed into the lost column in order that we might gain Christ. Paul wants us to understand that as he brings us to this text in chapter 12, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. You see, when God saved me, he did so for the glory of his son, not for the glory of myself. If my profession of faith didn't change from the inside out, then I wasn't real. And I wish, you know, one of the difficult things about moving around is that you don't know where we've come from as kids or as teens or as young adults. You don't know who I was before you finally met me. You don't know my testimony unless I actually share it. Maybe I should get rebaptized, then I can share my testimony again. But we don't often do that. I hope you'll take time to talk to one another and to hear one another's stories of how God took them from darkness to light and how they're able to celebrate the life of Jesus in them, not because of what they did, but because of what God did through the Lord Jesus Christ. Years ago, when I was in high school, I signed up for the cross-country team. I hated distance running. I only did it because I thought the daily workouts would help me in preparation for hockey and baseball, two sports that I loved. And it soon became obvious that I was a cross-country fraud. A team member who pretended to be a runner... Uh, some of you who love to run, you're going to laugh your way through this story. Bear with me. I was always the last person to cross the finish line. Sometimes I crossed the finish line on a commercial bus rather than actually running to the end. One time we were the visiting team at a particular meet. And I was so slow that the bus returning to the school left without me. The teacher was reprimanded for leaving me behind. I had to call my dad and he had to come out and pick me up. And he was not a happy camper. But he wasn't so much unhappy with the school as with me for not running a little faster. Another time we were practicing in the rain... And I had to go to the bathroom. So I went up to a house, knocked on the door, and asked to use the restroom. 
And after explaining my situation, this little old lady uh, let me in, and while I was using her bathroom, she was preparing milk and cookies for me. (laughs) We sat for a half hour and talked about life, and then I went on my way. I got back to the gym. The janitor said, where have you been? I didn't have the heart to tell him. I love cookies and milk more than I did running. And she invited me back, believe it or not. She said, whether you have to use my bathroom or not, come on back. She really enjoyed the visit. You know, I would have said I was a cross-country runner, but I was really a physical fraud. And spiritually, Paul wants to make sure that if you're going to pursue the prize, that you don't run the race in the flesh. That you're really genuinely in Jesus Christ. Because he's speaking to believers here. And believers are the only ones that have the ability to run and to finish the race. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Now let's get to our text. The first P that I promised we would consider is the word perfection. Paul says, I have not yet obtained... And while Paul belongs to Jesus, he makes it very clear that he has not yet arrived at the goal of Christ-like perfection, but he perseveres, he carries on because Jesus is the one who saved him. Jesus is the one who called him on the Damascus road. And he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. There are some who teach that Christian perfection is possible in this world. I don't have time this morning to get into all of those nuances, but it will be impossible for you to attain a perfectionary standard, even though I know that all of us really do like perfectionism. We we all like things to be perfect. I mean, think of all the things we buy that are new. Why did we do that? Why do you think car commercials are the most commercialized, publicized events. I mean, seriously, you turn on any football game or any sporting event, you're going to see outnumbered car commercials or truck commercials more than any other things because we like something new. Um, our car is, is several years old, or at least the one that I'm driving, but sometimes people get in it and they say, it smells new. They forget that I'm a senior and I don't drive much anymore. Isn't that the way I, I had one of my grandsons and he said, you know, I think when I get to Florida, I'm going to try to look for a car and buy a car. And I said, well, just look under the senior listings. That's where you'll get the cars that still smell like they're new. You know, the reason why Paul could say in chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain is because there's still something to come. Perfection awaits. All sin is done away with and all sin is gone. But not here, not as we run the race. John says in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Beloved, we are simultaneously sinners and saints at the same time. And we're growing in Christ-like maturity as we journey with Jesus in this life. 
Matthew 5.48 is not calling us to live perfect lives now. It's exposing our sinfulness. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is the standard. But in order for you to pursue a relationship with Jesus and to attain His righteousness, you need to admit that. You need to realize that we are not perfect in what we are trying to attain to. That only comes in Christ when we're covered with His righteousness. And and Jesus there is trying to expose our sinfulness so that we would seek a Savior. The real reason I think that I was late in coming to Christ is because I never had anyone confront my sin. People just pat me on the back, said, nice job. Or they tell my parents, oh, your son's a nice boy. He did this, he did that, he did this. And all of my good works were praised. And, um, and so I started praising myself rather than seeing myself as the Scripture sees me as a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us who run the race are going to be able to run it in our own strength. This race that Paul is calling us to pursue is only something that Jesus can give you the strength to do, which is why we need Him. Now in Philippians 3 here, Paul isn't throwing up his hands in despair. But he's actually assuring us that sanctification in this life is possible because Jesus Christ has made us His own. Look at verse 12. I press on because Jesus Christ has made me His own. The old is gone. The new has come. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I press on toward the goal. Verse 14. Now in some of your Bibles, the phrase I do is in italics. That means that it doesn't appear in the original Greek. Literally, it should read one thing. In your Christian, in your growth as a Christian, one thing needs to dominate your walk, and we'll see that in a moment in verse 13. Our son James coaches people who want to become more effective in reaching their goals. He started this work because he believed in the biblical principles laid out in a book written by a Christian named Gary Keller. The book is called The One Thing. Uh, Justin referred to it about a year ago. And some of you might recognize the, ga- the, the name because Gary Keller is also a realtor and the co-owner of Keller & Williams. Are you familiar with that realty? I think we have somebody that works for them in our congregation. And Gary co-authored the book because he believed that too many of us are hindered in our productivity because we have too many distractions unrelated to the gifts and calling that God has given each of us in this life. And you just think through your life and how many things that we have going on in our world each day. And, um, And Gary wants us to zero in on those things that God has truly gifted you with and focus on those things and not be distracted by so many others. In Vance Havner's devotional treasury, Havner quotes R.A. Torrey's advice to him when he was a new pastor. Uh, Listen to what he wrote. 
Young man, make up your mind on one thing and stick to it. Havner comments, he says, quote, The Christian life should be like a sword with one point, not like a broom ending in many straws. Such a single purpose forgets the past, reaches toward the future, and presses on. And I know as a runner, if you really genuinely want to run and finish the race, then you need to focus on the goal. When I was running cross-country, I didn't focus on the goal. In fact, I didn't even think I would make the goal or reach the goal. I just focused on surviving in the moment I was in. So what about the past? Paul says, be forgetful. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I think the past is often a distraction to us. It gets in the way of what God has called us to do. And when it comes to the past, we need to be like Paul and see it all as loss, as he describes for us in verses 4 through 8. Forgetting what lies behind. He, he doesn't rely on past things that he accomplished, and he doesn't rely or meditate on failures that have hindered him from pursuing what Christ would have us to pursue. Now, Paul isn't saying that he doesn't remember the past. He's simply choosing not to focus on past accomplishments or failures. Don't boast on the things that you've done. Just keep moving forward in the things that God would have you to do. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. In fact, in the first half of chapter 3, Paul was willing to go head-to-head -head with anyone who wanted to boast about their past. I mean, you can just look at all of the various things that he outlines for us there, uh, beginning in verses 4 through 7. Um, he, he was an impeccable Jew. He followed the law, the rituals. He was born into the right family. He obviously didn't forget about those accomplishments. He, he lists them for us here but they no longer counted for righteousness when Jesus saves a soul. He counted everything as lost that maybe he might have raised his hand and said, look at me. And you know what? I think one of the most difficult obstacles that keeps seniors, when I say seniors, I don't mean seniors in high school, but seniors, people, let's say, my age and older. I still want to think that I'm young. My wife occasionally will say, honey, I love your gray hair. And I'll say, I don't, because it reminds me of how old I'm getting. But seniors, I think one of the things that's really difficult for seniors, it's, in, it's really difficult for them to let go of the past. To let go of all the things that they've accomplished, of all of the things that they've accumulated, of all of the things that they have done over all of those years and to say that I have to consider them all lost so that I might gain Christ? To say that I have to put up a big zero for all of those things so that I might win the favor of God who loved me and died for me and went to Calvary's cross in my place? You see, Paul is adamant here if I'm going to follow Jesus and pursue the prize of the upward call, then I need to put the past behind me. Don't look back. Uh, 
again, when I was in high school, I was walking home. We would, I would walk to school each day. And as I was walking up the sidewalk on my way home after school, I heard a crash that was behind me. And I turned around, and I should have just stopped and, and, and then looked at whatever I was going to look at and then moved forward. But instead, I did one of these things. You ever do that? Only I hit a telephone pole. And uh, if you want to examine my head a little closer, I have a little bit of stitch there uh, from walking into a pole because I looked back instead of looking ahead. You know, that's a, a humorous illustration, but sometimes we get too distracted by the things in the past that we're unable to really focus on the things the Lord would have us to do in the future. And you know, the Lord may have used you in wonderful ways in the past, but we don't carry those laurels into the future. They were the Lord's anyway. He did them in and through us. We praise God for them, but we keep moving forward and serving what the Lord has new for us in this present day. So if your one thing is to become like Christ, then you mustn't live in the past. Galatians 2.20 tells us that our boasting and bemoaning has been crucified with Christ. I no longer live the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you are in Christ, the Lord has made you a new creature. You're not a perfect creature. You won't be perfect till the day you see Jesus face to face, but you are growing in Christ-likeness. Continue to run that race. By the way, even though we're not to think about the past, there are some things that God would love us to remember. And it, really briefly, if you might turn to Isaiah 44 for just a moment. Because I do think this would be helpful for us as we live our lives through some of the struggles and trials and difficulties that we face. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. And he's giving us, I think, four quick... If you're taking notes, you might want to just write these down. But he says there, remember that God formed you. You were created by God. Don't listen to what the world says about you birthing, being birthed from some amoeba that... Just remember that God formed you. You have a creator. He made you. Remember that God found you. You were not seeking him. You were going astray when the Lord rescued you from darkness and despair. Remember that God forgave you. All of your sins have been forgiven in Christ. God doesn't hold a hammer over your head and you're waiting for it to drop. You have been forgiven and set free by Jesus and what he did for you. And then remember God's faithfulness. Uh, don't ever forget those things. 
God is good and he always takes care of his own children. Uh, Even when we are faithless, the Bible says he is faithful. Uh, Sandy and I have rejoiced in Jesus because we've experienced a lifetime of God's faithfulness. So while there are definitely things that we must leave behind, there are some things we should remember, and these would be four of them that would really be a blessing. John MacArthur summarizes our passage well. He says, quote, Paul made a break with everything in his past, both good and bad, religious achievements, virtuous deeds, great successes in ministry, as well as sins, missed opportunities, and disasters must all be forgotten. They do not control the present or the future. Believers cannot live on past victories, nor should they be debilitated by the guilt of past sins. When I was growing up, I accumulated a lot of trophies, medals. Um, I received different awards for baseball and hockey and and ribbons, etc. Today, that's not so much a big deal. I think you even get a trophy if you're on the losing team. Anybody here get a trophy for being on the losing team? Then as a new believer, I remember singing the old rugged cross. Just let, let that hymn, pull that hymn from the back part of your brain to the surface. And in that hymn, there's one line that repeats saying, my trophies at last I... So somewhere in the Midwest, waste management has all of my trophies and my ribbons, and all of the things that I had accumulated. Because in order for me to move forward, I needed to forget what lies behind. The third P is the word prize. Paul was focused on the goal. He was focused on the prize. A good runner is focused on the finish line, not from where the race began, and, um, and he uses the same analogy in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, when he said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners win, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And I think at this point we should clarify, what is the prize? What are we running to win? I mean, is it salvation? Is it a specific crown? Is it a room in the heavenly Ritz-Carlton? I mean, what exactly is Paul striving to win? I wonder maybe why some people's motivations to pursue the prize aren't really there. They're not excited about running with full steam ahead. I think the seeker movement has deceived us over the years, substituting the heavenly prize for the many earthly goodies. And so people are chasing after the goodies rather than the prize himself who is the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming more like him. How many people have made professions of faith without really possessing the prize of eternal life? The passage that was read earlier, did you count the cost when you followed Jesus Christ? Did you understand the reality of what Christ called you to do and to be as a Christian? Another pastor put it this way, Paul is saying what is clearly taught in a lot of places in Scripture, that there are people who believe that they believe in Christ for salvation, but in fact don't. 
They kind of believe in Christ, but in fact their faith is not a true living act of saving faith, but rather it is what the Bible calls a dead faith. And that was me many years ago. The Lord had to wake me up out of my uh, spiritual sleep in order for me to see the truth and believe and, and follow Christ. And I think the context here helps us to see that the prize is conformity to Christ himself. Jesus is the fullness of our joy. Even when you're going through trials and tribulations, what does James say in James chapter 1, verse 2? Consider it all joy. There is joy in Jesus even in the midst of the struggles that we face. And Paul is saying, keep your eyes fixed on him. Run the race as you're running it for Jesus, to be like him. And then he goes on to say that there are others, maybe people in your midst who are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. But the believer's citizenship is in heaven. Those who are genuinely in Christ are heavenly-minded creatures waiting for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we said last time, our prayers must go vertical before they go horizontal. Do you have a genuine walk with Jesus? Are you progressing in sanctification with Christ? Then focus on one thing, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pursue the heavenly prize by letting go of your past. Pursue the prize. It's Christ Himself. Become like Him. There's no greater pursuit that we could have in life. As long as we think that somehow there's something in us that we could do to contribute to God's favor and blessing, we're in trouble. We are in trouble. Notice the two words Paul uses, straining and pressing. The fruit of the Spirit will motivate you to pursue Christ no matter what the cost. To run the race, even when it hurts. And that was where I gave up running cross country. As soon as I got a little tightness in my belly or um, the legs were wanting to give out, I was not willing to endure. I said, that's it, I'm done, I quit. Pursue Christ whose tender mercies are new every morning, whose eternal truths will transform your life and comfort your soul. Pursue the prize of the upward call. Don't just know about Jesus. Know him as your personal Lord and Savior. Uh, maybe some of you might remember this, but many years ago, Sandy owned uh, a poster with all the names of Christ. And uh, there might have been at least 50 of them there, maybe even 75. Uh, every... Every title referred to some aspect of the Savior's character or position, uh, both in heaven and on earth. Do you know the Almighty God, the Alpha and Omega, the Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Bread of Life, the Good Shepherd, the Great Physician, the Lamb of God, the Light of the World, the Prophet, Redeemer, the Righteous One, the Sinless Savior, the Vine, the Word, the Way, the Truth, and the Life? Do you know Jesus? Not perfectly, but persistently. Paul is calling us to know this Lord. He's your Lord if you know him personally. He bought you. He saved you. You belong to him. And so the last P in this outline is pursue. What are you pursuing today? What really is important to you? 
Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Continue to respond to the light that God gives you in Jesus. As you read the word and as you pray through the word and as you interact with other believers, how are you growing in Jesus and pursuing the prize to be more like our Lord? Uh, That's what we're going to do with the interns over the course of the next year. We're just going to help facilitate their walk with Jesus in a way that will enable them to pursue Jesus Christ in ways that will enable them to establish ministry uh, apart from this place. Well, my time is gone, and we want to look to the Lord and celebrate his table. And I say celebrate his table because the table celebration is truly that. It's a time to rejoice in Jesus for what he has done for us. And the more we rejoice in him, Paul says, we'll run the race with greater fervency. And I pray that that would be your passion as well as mine as we continue to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as uh, the ushers are dismissed in preparation for our table celebration, thank you for Paul's passion. Thank you for the warnings that he gives us here uh, to not be like those who are not pursuing you but to follow him as he follows Christ. May we be the examples even for others who are still new in their faith and their walk with Jesus. And Lord, might the passion to run the race be contagious as we seek the prize at the very end, at the finish line of our faith, the prize being Christ's likeness in the Lord who loved us and died for us and rescued us from darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his light so that we might celebrate and rejoice together in his name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.